Hello, welcome to the September 2023 Respiratory Care Podcast and Editor's Commentary. This is Rich Branson. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice describes implementation of a respiratory therapist-driven protocol for spirometry and asthma education in a pediatric outpatient primary care setting. Long and colleagues performed a quality improvement study aimed at increasing the frequency of spirometry testing and patient education in patients referred to the facility. Subjects with asthma underwent spirometry and asthma education every 6 to 12 months depending on the severity of symptoms. Following protocol implementation, there was a nearly 50% increase in spirometry and education along with improved physician respiratory therapist communication. So much of what we do in healthcare can be informed by process. And this is just as simple as assuring that patients who qualify were referred to get the spirometry as well as the education they needed. They concluded that the protocol was successful and demonstrated the vital role of respiratory therapists in the asthma management. Baker provides an accompanying editorial. She concurs with the author's findings, suggesting that future studies should also evaluate healthcare utilization, length of visits, reimbursement, adherence to the care plan, as well as customer satisfaction. In this case, the customer being the, the patient and family. Luell and I'll describe a retrospective review of patient ventilator asynchrony in patients with acute brain injury. They focus specifically on ineffective efforts identified by investigators from 15-minute tracings when patients who they also recorded P.1. They evaluated 852 data sets from 71 subjects ventilated for at least three days. Ineffective efforts were identified in 80% of data sets and an asynchrony index greater than 10% was seen in 30% of subjects. They found a relationship between low respiratory drive, denoted as a P.1, less than 1.1 centimeters of water pressure, and greater ineffective efforts. This is actually kind of interesting because in previous cases we've seen where head injured patients appear to be triggering the ventilator, but it's from cardiogenic oscillations. Kreiner provides accompanying commentary reviewing the findings in head injured patients that includes both ineffective efforts in this study and auto-triggering often seen in patients suffering brain death, which can impact organ donation. McPeck, Moon, and co-authors contribute two papers on aerosol therapy during high-flow nasal cannula. The first describes a model system validated by real-time gamma rate meter technique using technetium-99. They found the major source of aerosol loss was at the nasal interface. They concluded that real-time analysis quantifies effects of changes in nebulizer technology, infusion rate, gas flow, and the ventilation during a given experiment. This is an attempt by this group to establish a baseline on how to take, do this testing so that regardless of whose device you test and in what model, um, you'll get the same results or comparable results. The second paper compares breath-enhanced jet nebulizers with vibrating mesh nebulizers using methods described in the first paper. They found that increasing gas flow, increased breath-enhanced jet nebulizer output, and at 60 liters a minute, the jet nebulizer output delivered five times more aerosol compared to conventional vibrating mesh nebulizer. Berlinski considers both papers in an accompanying editorial. He discusses the issues associated with multiple labs using varying models to test aerosol delivery devices each leading to potentially different results. He also notes that the breath-enhanced jet nebulizer appears to offer customization without having to change the concentration of the medication solution. Finally, he urges evaluations of new technologies to consider costs. 
a little bit better aerosol delivery at three or four or 10 times the cost probably isn't practical in the current healthcare environment. Charlton and others compared a survey of respiratory therapists, speech language pathologists, physicians, advanced practice providers, and registered dietitians regarding feeding practices during hypho-nasal cannula. This international survey inquired about current practice and opinions regarding feeding. They found that few facilities had protocols to guide practice in this area, and speech language pathologists were far more likely to suggest bedside swallowing exams before allowing oral intake. Al Makani reported a retrospective review of the use of non-invasive respiratory support in 299 children over a 19-month time frame outside the ICU in units they refer to as high-dependency units. They found that 78% of subjects were effectively managed with CPAP or non-invasive ventilation. Failure of non-invasive respiratory support was associated with an elevated FiO2 greater than 50% and a PEEP greater than 7. They concluded that non-invasive respiratory support outside the ICU was safe and effective. Becker and colleagues evaluated biologic quality control data from com a completed multicenter inhaled medication trial to determine the expected values for DLCO, biologic quality control, using coefficient of variation and determine if the mean plus or minus two standard deviation control rule provides the same precision as mean plus or minus 12% difference from the mean. They evaluated data from 168 subjects in the first year with fewer subjects in years two and three as the study progressed. They found that a DLCO biologic quality control coefficient of variation less than 6% was achievable across multiple sites, technologists, and brands of equipment. They also concluded that a control rule of mean plus or minus two standard deviations yielded similar results as the mean plus or minus 12% difference. Shaw et al. contributed a report evaluating aerosol production in children performing spirometry, finding little ambient contamination. This is consistent with a paper we published several months ago from the Mayo Clinic in adults. Stillman and others provide a short report on the quality of mucus and mechanically ventilated subjects in the ICU. They found no correlation between the clinical mucus classification, thin, moderate, thick, and the biophysical properties of the mucus as measured by rheology. This is an interesting study, and it may mean that there just is no way to compare these um, two techniques, what we see as being thin or thick um, in the actual rheology of the mucus, or it may be that it doesn't matter, but it certainly has to give us some pause as we sometimes use that, that measure to determine if the patient's adequately humidified and perhaps switch from a heated to a heated humidifier from an HME. Zeng provides a narrative review on evaluating respiratory mechanics in the assessment of lung recruitment. This includes discussion now of EIT um, and a number of new techniques for determining if the patient is actually achieving lung recruitment during the addition of PEEP. Agarwal and others provide a systematic review of the impact of fingernail polish on the accuracy of pulse oximetry measurements. We've all been taught to remove nail polish in patients before using pulse oximeters because it can affect the accuracy. Um, this is an interesting study looking at multiple different colors of fingernail polish. Miralis Cabodavia and colleagues from the Cleveland Clinic provide a primer on the use of, in, use of and interpretation of esophageal pressure measurements as part of our New Horizons Symposium. Um, this is an excellent article that really is important reading if you want to um, familiarize yourself and use esophageal pressure monitoring correctly. This month, we also include a selection of papers from our symposium, Research and Publication in Respiratory Care. These papers include how to conduct a systematic review, 
by Zaccanini and Lee, and an overview of survey research by Linda Goodfellow, and submitting them, and how to submit a manuscript to a scientific journal by our assistant editor, Sarah Moore. Those of you who have been involved with the journal have probably interfaced with Sarah on a number of occasions through Manuscript Central or through email, and here's her first chance to write something in the literature. Um, we're very proud of her performance and um, think this paper will be very instructive to help people get their submission down right the first time. We appreciate your attention to the podcast, for reading the journal in support of the AARC, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.